Hello and welcome to TopCast for a little bit of cross-promotion, something a little bit different today. I did an interview earlier this year in 2021 with Chris from Do Explain, that other podcast that concentrates on all things optimistic and progress and everything that has been inspired by the beginning of infinity and the fabric of reality. Chris does an excellent interview series with a whole bunch of people and he asked if I'd be interested in promoting his podcast on my podcast. And he gave me this sob story about how he's from Sweden and basically he's living under a Marxist nightmare where the sun barely rises for months of the year and they have to fight off polar bears with flaming sticks in the darkness like something out of Game of Thrones. So I felt sorry for him. And there is a long history of Australians coming to the rescue of Europeans and so I thought, yes, I can be part of that lineage of people going into the Northern Hemisphere and helping out as far as I'm able to. But I do hope that if you listen to this episode, you will be inspired to go and subscribe to Do Explain, Chris's excellent podcast there. I'm very happy to collaborate with Chris on this. As you'll hear, he's a great interviewer, even if, as is fairly obvious, he is working in his fourth language. We talk about epistemology and physics and, well, all the great hits, so to speak. This is the first part of our chat, and if you'd like to hear Chris's other interviews, well, just Google Do Explain, the podcast. I'll put some links in the description. He's interviewed David Deutsch about his work, Luli Tannett about meme theory and learning, Charlie Youngheim, who is a mutual friend of ours, about optimism. Charlie has one of the only impressions I've heard of myself that's out there, so his episodes with Chris are definitely worth listening to, if only for that. But actually, Charlie and Chris together have great chemistry and really explore lots of the beginning of infinity themes in a fun way. Michael Golding, a psychiatrist, is there with a great interview about clinical practice and how he has incorporated some of the explicit teachings from the worldview in, let's say, the beginning of infinity into helping people on a personal level. Sarah Fitzclarage has recently spoken with Chris about a philosophy of how to help children flourish, which is called TCS, Taking Children Seriously. And Chris is not shy of having people on his podcast that come from a completely different perspective as well, or at least a slightly different perspective. For example, his recent interview with Jake Orthwein is in two parts and is about a different way of looking at epistemology if you're not fully on board with the Popperian worldview. Matt Gutman has argued against free will on Chris's podcast and Sam Kuypers has argued for it. I've got a lot of favourite episodes on Chris's excellent podcast, so if you're tired of waiting for the next talk cast, there's no better way of tuning in. Do we still say that? Subscribing, downloading, streaming. I sound terribly old, don't I? Listening to some more episodes of Do Explain in the meantime. Chris is one of the few people actually who does reliably make me feel old by calling me Uncle Brett, something that hitherto only my own nieces have done. But that's okay. Strangely, Chris has a very Australian sense of humour, so far as I can tell, which is basically about forming social bonds through meeting the challenge of finding a more or less witty way to remind the other person that they're a completely fallible human being. Well, that's a polite way to put it. Whatever the case, here in this conversation that I'm about to have with Chris and you're about to hear, if you haven't already heard it, we talk about aspects of physics like quantum theory, parts of epistemology, the significance of people, free will versus determinism, and understanding universality. Part of this conversation, it seems to me, actually did inspire me to go on to make a few of my standalone episodes like The Nexus and Understanding Universality. 
Anyways, there is a genuine wealth of information there at their Do Explain podcast, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Without further ado, here is my interview with Chris on Do Explain. Both of us are great adherents of the Bostrom worldview. We believe it. We've calculated it. There's a very small probability that we're going to survive the next century. And unless we start taking seriously all the ways in which everything from AGI to climate change is just going to wipe out our species, I think that these optimists in the Deutschian style of thinking are going to be one of the causes of our demise. I agree with all of that. But not only that, through direct observation, one can objectively see the truth manifest. And I think the... Oh, shit. Are we recording? All right. So today I'm here with none other than the great Brett Hall. And uh, I'm actually going to let Brett introduce himself this time. So Brett, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're here? Yeah. So I've been asked to introduce myself a few times over the last few months on different forums, and I've managed to botch the attempt every single time. So I've tried to figure out how to introduce (laughs) myself to you. And perhaps the best way I can do it is in a way that's kind of Papirian, which is kind of appropriate, I suppose. So rather than tell you who I am or what the truth of my background is, I'll tell you what I'm not. So I sort of, I started studying science, but never actually became a scientist. So I'm not a scientist. I wanted to become an astronomer as a little kid, went off, studied a fair bit of astronomy, but I'm not an astronomer. I never became an astronomer. I took a degree in philosophy, studied a lot of philosophy, but I'm not a philosopher either. I was a security guard while I was at university, but I'm not a security guard anymore either. I was a teacher for a while. I'm no longer a teacher. These are all the things I'm not. I think the thing that is closest to the way I describe what I do now is a job I did hold at university. I I held this position called science communicator, which sounds all very impressive. But I wouldn't even call myself a science (laughs) communicator now because looking at the community of science communicators now, they're a little off-putting in terms of their authoritarian tendencies. You know, they're these people who say, believe the evidence and uh, follow the science as if science is some sort of authoritarian leader that we all need to get behind. So I wouldn't even call myself a science communicator now. So the best I can say about myself, I think, is I'm just a podcaster. Mm. I mean, (laughs) I like that. I've never had someone explain their own situation and describe themselves by, yeah, falsifying (laughs) <laughs> claims that they are something. That that's really cool, man. And uh you have become, for better or worse, the face of Deutschian critical rationalism. And I'm joking of course because you were Yeah, no 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 man. I mean I'm uh I used to uh, I usually refer to you as the Alan Watts of our day or the Alan Watts of critical rationalism. Are you suggesting and, I'm gonna uh, die of alcoholism before my time? That is exactly what I mean by that. No, it's um it's because I think you're a great communicator of these ideas. You're clearly very passionate about them, which I think is one of the most important things. But I don't know how you came to these ideas in the first place and what your intellectual backstory was there. And I'm sure you've talked about it somewhere, but I would love if you could recapitulate that uh, history for our listeners a little bit and we can take it from there. Yeah, sure. So as I kind of indicated in my introduction to myself, uh, as a kid, I really wanted to be an astronomer. That's all I wanted to do. I looked up at the stars. My parents bought me books about the universe and books about space. And so I knew that I wanted to go off to university and study astronomy. But when I was at school, I didn't realize that studying astronomy entailed taking on an entire physics degree. 
And so towards the end of my high schooling, I started to pick up popular science books. And in particular, Paul Davies, Professor Paul Davies, wrote a large number of popular science books. Chief among them was a book called The Mind of God, which ended up winning him the Templeton Prize, which is quite a lucrative science prize. Well, it's at the intersection of science and theology. And in reading this book, I really became interested in sort of not only astronomy, but broader issues around physics, mathematics, philosophy. And so when I did finally get to university and commenced studying physics, I was disappointed in a sense because certainly when I got to the quantum physics side of things, which Paul Davies made sound really, really interesting, I found just Mm. completely and utterly confusing. I didn't understand what was going on. The way in which the lectures were presented were very dry, very mathematical. And when it came to trying to understand what was going on in the experiments, we were always sort of pushed aside with responses like, well, no one understands this. And the quip that Richard Feynman had of, you know, if you think you understand quantum theory, you don't understand quantum theory. And so I became somewhat disillusioned with the whole quantum physics thing and went into studying a little bit more mathematics, a little bit more philosophy, other areas of physics. I went back to astronomy kind of thing. And at the time, as I I sort of uh, said earlier, I was a security guard at a a very large shopping centre. And the shopping centre had like three or four bookshops back when there were bookshops around the place and Amazon didn't uh, take (laughs) over the selling of books. And I would wander into these bookshops and immediately make a beeline for the popular science section to see what new books had come out. I'd read everything that Paul Davies had put out. And one day, here was this book called The Fabric of Reality by David Deutsch. And at the time, I didn't realise I had encountered the name David Deutsch before in the work of Paul Davies. But there was nothing really notable about the mentions of David Deutsch in The Mind of God or in any of uh, Paul Davies' other books. But on the back of The Fabric of Reality, and I've told this story a few times, was a recommendation by Paul Davies saying something along the lines of, I haven't been so inspired since I read Gödel, Escher and Bach, which is very high praise. You know, that Douglas Hofstadter book is regarded as being one of the greatest all-time popular science books. And so for Paul Davies to compare the work of David Deutsch to someone like Douglas Hofstadter, I thought, well, I've got to get this book. I've got to get this Fabric of Reality book. So I immediately bought it, took it home. And in chapter one, it was straight away uh, obvious to me that here was a guy speaking my language. He said something along the lines very early on there, I think it's like page one or page two of chapter one, that it was thought by the ancients that they could eventually come to understand everything that could be understood But now in the modern era, the claim seems to be there's no way a single person can understand everything that could be understood. After all, science just keeps to seems to keep fragmenting itself into ever more specialized disciplines. So how could anyone come to know everything that could be known? But David says there, in at the beginning of the fabric of reality, well, it's not about trying to know every single fact that is known. What it's about is trying to come to a deep understanding of our our most fundamental theories, which from which you end up being able to derive understandings of everything else that is understood. And so far from having to know lots more, you only need to know these few fundamental principles, laws, theories, explanations. And then from that, you can get a good understanding of the entirety of reality, but that wasn't the best part. I thought, well, that's a, that's a really impressive way to begin a popular science book. It wasn't until I got to chapter two, chapter two is called Shadows, that 
Well, at the time I was studying, again, um, physics degree. I was, I was struggling through trying to understand quantum physics, just feeling disillusioned with the whole thing, not getting it, being told no one gets it, no matter which popular science book I hitherto had gone to, was I getting a coherent story about what's going on in these experiments. But in that book, in, in, in that chapter, Shadows, he lays out the classic two-slit experiment. And it was then that I had this sensation that I think I'd only had once before, uh, which was probably about 12 months prior I'd been reading Descartes' Meditations, fantastic five meditations of Descartes at six, I can't remember. Anyway, it's a wonderful feeling of vertigo. And in reading Mm. Descartes, Descartes talks about how he's sitting there by the fire and he's wondering if he's dreaming or if he's awake. And then he has this method of doubt and he thinks, well, what can I be certain of? And he ends up realising that the only thing of which he, Descartes, could be certain is the fact that when he thinks, when he is doubting, when he's going through this process of doubt, that something is doubting, therefore something exists and that something is him. And when I I read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's astonishing. That was a real sense of vertigo, like everything fell out from beneath me and I had a new way of looking at the world. Yeah, I'm getting goosebumps when you describe it. Yeah, and 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 that sensation was was a hundredfold when I read the description of how this experiment worked, this twin slit experiment, which I'd read about countless times before. But when David Deutsch explained it in Shadows, suddenly the mind just expanded. It was just, it was phenomenal. It was like I can imagine that people who you know drop acid have this kind of sensation, but I didn't need to drop acid. <laughs> I was just reading this book and suddenly my mind expanded from the experiment and from the page that I was reading into infinite kind of realities, to this multiplicity of universes, because I suddenly understood that this was the only way in which to understand what was going on in this experiment. And so that immediately made me think, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. This guy's not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. He's just trying to lay out as clearly as possible, as astounding as it sounds, what the actual explanation of this experiment is and what quantum theory is all about. And suddenly from there on, I got quantum theory. You know, I didn't become a quantum physicist. I didn't, I didn't pursue the, the, the details or anything like that, but I felt as though now I get it. And I just didn't yeah. understand. I was kind of angry with the, the lecturers at university and everyone. I was like, why won't you, tell, why, why won't you teach us this? This is, the, this is the way to go. And I, I got to meet Paul Davies sometime time later. I was very lucky enough. He, he, he moved to Australia and he was there in Australia, Australian University and he came to Sydney. And uh, now, long story short, I, I did talk to him about this. I said, you know, do you endorse the multiverse explanation? And again, he just sort of, he kind of fobbed me off. He was a lovely man, you know, very polite and, you know, willing to talk. But he, he, he basically said, words to the effect, of, I don't have time to explain all the ways in which that's wrong. And in reading his, his, his uh, explanation as to why he thought that the multiverse wasn't correct, well, he relied on Occam's razor. He was basically saying, well, in order to explain the one universe we have, we have to postulate an infinite number of universes. And he didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, I it's think not parsimonious. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of cool stuff in there, Brad. First of all, I think the um, shut up and calculate interpretation, as it's called, of quantum theory or the whole, yeah, it cannot be understood is a very shitty way to frame the problem of understanding it because, I mean, you're not even going to try. And uh, yeah, we might get into that later, why so many people doubt that we actually do have a good understanding of quantum theory. Also, I I can really relate to that phenomenology of, yeah, you're trying to grapple with a problem and it's some inexplicit feeling, kind of similar in a way, I think, to when you have something in your mind, you want to say something, it's on your tongue, but you can't really find it and you're looking for it. And then all of a sudden, 
it clicks and you find that word or you you remember what you wanted to say or in this case something clicks and you solve a problem that you previously hadn't been able to solve and it's just like you say it's this expansive almost high feeling of uh, joy and excitement and curiosity and uh, yeah it's a really cool feeling yeah and it, it's just like the way that david begins the beginning of infinity he begins with the, the quote from john archibald wheeler where he says Behind it all is surely an idea so simple, so beautiful, that when we grasp it in a decade, a century, or millennium, we will all say to each other, how could it have been otherwise? And whether or not (laughs) that applies to a particular physics theory of everything, so-called theory of everything, or whether it applies to anything like the situation I just described, it's like you're struggling to try and understand this thing, you're not getting satisfactory answers. And then when you do get a satisfactory answer, it can be so simple. But the simple idea, the joy of finding that simple idea can be just so thrilling that it makes you it, it, it causes some kind of addiction towards that style of writing, that style of presentation and that way of understanding the world, which I think is why so many of us have been drawn together like into this uh, like this gravitational pull where we've all come together trying to appreciate these ideas more, specifically for that reason, because they're simple but underappreciated. We want other people to be able to appreciate these ideas because we know how thrilling it is, how thrilling it is to understand these simple ideas. I say simple, but they're also subtle. You know, there's a, there's a mind shift one has to go through in order to really change perspective, which could be the hardest thing to do because you are brought up, of course, in an environment, in an educational environment, in a culture, which is in many ways antithetical or antagonistic towards some of these concepts that uh, we're going to talk about throughout this conversation. Yeah, no, for sure. And uh, I think an accusation that has been leveled against us both, the idea that this podcast or your stuff, it's all just masturbating on the content of David Deutsch and just saying whatever he says. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what these ideas are and what they grant you. They they give you, first of all, a fundamental understanding of how far we've come so far. But more essentially than that, I think it gives you an understanding of how do you evaluate explanations? How do you take in information and evaluate whether it's useful and potentially true or whether it's complete bullshit? And that then allows you not to have the answers to every potential question already and and falling back on some authority there where we just say, oh, no, but it's in this book, Beginning of Infinity, like it's the Bible. And so that has to be the case. It gives you new lenses through which you can view the world and then evaluate things for yourself. The whole central idea, at least to me, is we all have the same potential as people and There are no authorities. You have to think for yourself, and this is the way to evaluate things. And it also includes the fact that these theories can be wrong as well. We've talked about fallibilism a lot, but the idea that, yeah, there's no claim you can make that is absolute or certain, and it doesn't need to be. So you have to question the ideas themselves, and uh, that's what makes them fundamentally different from something like religion or something that just tells you to accept it with blind faith, and then you can't argue against it anymore or test it anymore. We test it all the time. 
precisely, I couldn't agree with that more. You, you've, you've expressed it very, very well. And I, I began my own uh, series, my own modest attempt to understand the, the worldview presented in The Beginning of Infinity with an episode where I'm sort of halting and I'm uncertain. But, I, but I'm basically saying I'm thinking out loud. I'm trying to understand these ideas myself. Yes. And the only way to learn, as we both know, is via this critical method. You have to conjecture the idea yourself criticize it in your own mind and if it survives those criticisms then you accept it as part of the repertoire of ideas that you have moving forward now this is completely unlike anything in religion of course in religion you cleave to the words very closely and you can't change the text but what i'm trying to do and what you're trying to do and various other people in the community are trying to do is not cleave to the text what we're trying to do is to explain these ideas in ever new different ways, using different words, modifying the ideas hither and thither as required so that all of us can try and understand what is being said here. David's not trying to say, this is the only way that you can think. What he's trying to say, what he's trying to put out there is a particular series of theories, uh, approaches to knowledge, approaches to to physics, to, to science more broadly, to reason more broadly, and uh, giving people some initial tools to then go into the world and to solve their own problems, but to make progress, you know, uh, in their own life, their own community, and 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 hopefully as a civilization as well. That the book has all those different levels, which is another way in which it's kind of unique. That it can be both. Uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, demean it by saying, you know, the work of David Deutsch is about self-help, but it can. It can have elements there that are very much oh, yeah. going to be personally helpful in your individual life, as well as hopefully helpful on a civilizational level where governments can actually take some of this stuff on board and uh, have more optimistic policies, more more human or humanistic policies. Yeah, no. So, so the self-help point, I know David himself is very careful not to say that he's giving any self-help advice, but as you say, it has implications, vast implications even. Just understanding a few simple things like there's nothing that your mind can understand that mine can't if I'm interested to learn it. There's no fundamental difference between you and me, such as the idea of IQ being hardware that limits me, but not you and stuff like that. And then also, yeah, that there are no authorities. And, and the most freeing thing I can imagine psychologically is truly thinking for yourself to be able to actually evaluate claims and explanations and information by yourself I think it's the, the biggest gift you can give to someone to, to trust their own thinking like that. Yeah, and if I can take it back um, rather self-centeredly to my own story with respect to that, <laughs> oh, um, I kind of, um, as I say, struggling to understand the content of quantum theory lectures that I was going to in like second and third year university and not wanting to take anyone's word for it. I was just very critical the entire time. The fact that I didn't understand it, on the one hand, I thought, well, maybe you're mentally just not up to it. But that was a small portion of the explanation I gave myself as to why I couldn't understand this stuff. The better explanation was either no one understands this or the people that I'd been speaking to didn't understand this. And so I had this real desire to think for myself, think through this stuff for myself. And so even when someone with the reputation of Richard Feynman is saying, if you think you understand quantum theory, you don't understand quantum theory, I very quickly and easily kind of dismissed that and thought, well, 
That's a clever little quip, but I want to understand this stuff because I thought I, I thought I was reasonably clever because I, you know, had maybe we, I'll just explain to the audience for anyone who might be unfamiliar with this thing called Young's twin slit experiment. Young's twin slit experiment is the classic quantum physics demonstration that shows that something weird is going on in quantum theory. Now, what you can do the prosaic, familiar Young's twin slit experiment, named after Thomas Young back in the, uh, I'll make a mistake here, but sometime in the 1800s, he did the classic experiment where he shone a light at two slits cut into a piece of board, and then through those two slits went the beam of light, which was then projected onto another screen, and you get this classic thing called the interference pattern. And if you understand some physics and you understand some ways in which waves interact, water waves, sound waves, then you can explain what's going on in that interference experiment. You can explain it as, well, light's a wave because what happens is you get areas of dark and light banding. And the dark bands are where you've got destructive interference where a effectively a trough meets a crest and they cancel each other out so you get no light in that area. And in other places you get bright areas and those are places where two crests meet and so they they reinforce one another and you get this bright area so it seems like according to thomas young's old experiment that therefore light's a wave so what a wonderful solution to this whole problem about what the nature of light was before thomas young we had uh, isaac newton saying well it's corpuscular it's made out of particles but this seemed to falsify that now the problem is you get into the 1900s and people start doing experiments where they can show that light is in fact a particle, like it can do things like you can shine a light at certain kinds of metal and it will knock electrons out of their orbits. Now, if, a, if something can knock an electron out of its orbit and it's being held in that orbit by the electrostatic force, you know, you've got the positive nucleus and you've got the negative electrons, they're effectively uh, attracted one to another. The only thing that's going to knock that electron out of its orbit is something with momentum. And so therefore this led people over time, uh, along with some other experiments, to conclude or at least to explain light as particles, packets of light, photons we call them. And so we know that light is not a wave, it's particles because we can do these experiments. So then it becomes a huge mystery because if you fire photons one at a time at this apparatus, at this Young's twin slit apparatus, you know, you fire one photon, you wait a second, fire another photon, wait a second, you still get this interference phenomenon going on. You still end up with these bright and dark bands over time accumulating. And if that's not weird enough, you can do this with electrons, things that you know must be particles, they're not waves, or indeed entire atoms will do the same thing. You'll get an interference pattern. And so this becomes a mystery. And so the classic way that people try and explain or explain away, I would say, what's going on here is something called wave-particle duality, where you say that a particle is a particle sometimes and a wave other times. But this, for me, violates logic. You know, It violates the law of the occluded middle, which basically says... A thing right. X cannot both be and not be simultaneously. Either I'm here doing a podcast with you or I'm not. It's one or the other. I can't be both of those things simultaneously. And so in trying to understand this interference phenomena, this twin slit experiment, every explanation that is given, aside from the one that I'm going to explain to you, is either going to be some violation of logic and some, by the way, some physicists uh, just go the whole hog and they say, well, you know, logic has to bow down to quantum theory. We need a new logic. We need quantum logic, which is more fundamental than basic logic. So in that case, you can violate the law of the excluded middle. Of course, I'm not happy with that. I don't like that. I think that is unreasonable. That just, we, we, we cannot have 
random violations of logic by what's going on in science. That's not the way to understand reality. Reality must make sense. And that doesn't make sense. Uh, isn't and, there, sorry to interject, but isn't there already a version of that prayer, consistent logic or something like that, that can deal with contradictions? Yes, but I don't think that logic applies to the real world. We can invent mathematical systems that are more resembling art. You know, abstract art need not rep represent anything that's going on in the real world. We can have these kind of abstract mathematical tools that are fun to play with, but might have no bearing actually on what's going on in the real world. So sure, you can have all kinds of logic. You can have these quantum logics. You can take away the insistence that the law of the excluded middle must obtain in the real world. But just because you can do that doesn't mean that it's accurate to or, or accurate to apply it to real life. No, that's a cool explanation. Yeah, I actually, I just wanted to throw that in there. It's just sound a little smarter than I am because I don't know anything about it. But sorry, man, continue, please. Um, and so uh, the other way of going, like apart from let's just accept the fact that the world makes no sense, essentially, uh, and that the world doesn't have to obey simple logic, let's instead go down the road of, uh, well, if you observe the system, then it changes the experiment. But if you don't observe the system, then the experiment proceeds as normal. And this is the idea sometimes referred to as the Copenhagen interpretation, which is where you have some role for consciousness in fundamental physics, that there is some important way in which the observer is actually affecting the outcome of the experiment. Now, I didn't like this either. This sounds too spooky. This sounded weird. But some people are willing to go down that road. And, and, and much effort in the 1900s was expended by all sorts of top physicists in trying to figure out why it is that if you observe something, uh, then you get one outcome. And if you don't observe it, you get a different outcome. And, and this is one of the... One of the ways in which uh, people like David Deutsch and uh, Hugh Everett, who came up with the many worlds interpretation, we don't call it interpretation anymore, we just say, we're literally explaining what's going on with the equations of quantum theory and with what's going on with our observations of the experiments. We just say, and as David points out in The Fabric of Reality, that it has nothing to do with the observer. The observer is just part of reality as well. They're not having any special effect. There's no weird force coming out of your brain heading towards the photons and changing the path of the photons. What we say is that when you fire a single photon at the apparatus, the single photon goes through one of those slits. You can observe it going through one of those slits. Now, if you cover up the other slit, what happens is the interference pattern disappears. And instead, the one slit will allow a photon to go through or not go through it. Maybe it won't hit the slit. But if it goes through, it'll continue to go through that slit and just end up at one spot behind where the slit is on the screen. And if you reopen the other slit, the second slit, then suddenly the interference pattern comes back which means there's something coming through that second slit that you do not observe, that you cannot observe. And our conclusion is, well, that thing that's coming through, it's part of our universe in a sense, it's part of our reality, but we're prohibited from measuring it in any way. We're prohibited from detecting it other than through this interference phenomena. What's happening is something's coming through that slit that is able to crash into, literally crash into the photon that we do observe and push it aside, push it into a different place, push it into such a place that you get over time this interference effect building up. And that thing that's coming through that other slit, it's a photon. It's just a photon that we can't detect. 
Now, technically speaking, what we say is, well, it's a photon in a different universe. Because if you were to do this experiment with any other particle, then that particle, like an electron, is going to be accompanied by electrons that you cannot observe. And if you do the experiment with atoms, it's going to be accompanied by atoms you cannot observe. And this means that for every single particle, there are other versions of that particle that you cannot observe. Now, at this point in the explanation, people say, oh, well, you're postulating entities that you cannot possibly observe. Well, we can, in a sense, know that they're there because they're having an effect on the things that we do observe. It's rather mm. like uh, in my own field, astronomy, if we look uh, uh, at very distant stars – we can't necessarily directly observe planets going around those stars, but we can see the stars move, and so we know the planets must be there. By, by a, a chain of logic and explanation, we can postulate the existence of things we cannot see in astronomy. And as David, as it pains to point out in, in various places, TED Talks and in his books, this, in fact, is just so common throughout science. that The history of science is replete with making claims about things which, in principle, we can't observe, or for all practical purposes, we'll never be able to observe. The Big Bang is one of my favourite examples. The other one is, you know, the, the, the core of a star where fusion reactions are going on. We can't get there to observe these things. And in the same way, when it comes to this double-slit experiment, all we're saying is the universe is a bit bigger than what we thought, stupendously bigger than what we thought. But this is, again, <laughs> the history of science. Whenever we make uh, discoveries, we find out, oh, the universe is even bigger than what we thought before. And this is just another case of that. And this is why, uh, you know, I guess there's two styles of people. You know, I read um, The Fabric of Reality and I went, okay, that makes sense. You know, I had the sense of vertigo. It was a wonderful, joyful experience. But it wasn't like I was just balking at the notion and going, this can't possibly be the case. But there is a kind of person who is going to balk at it and go, this can't possibly be the case. But the thing is about quantum theory that there has to be some explanation. And of all the explanations on offer, they're all, they all make you sound a little bit crazy. <laughs> but there's mm -hmm. only one that makes literal sense. And, and this is the one that makes literal sense. And the, the shut up and calculate, of course, explanation is no explanation at all. You mentioned that. It's like, this is just denying that there's anything that can be said at all. And in the absence of explanations that everyone might just accept on the face of it, we defer to the best explanation. And the best explanation is the explanation that is the multiverse. Right. Nice, mate. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a great introduction to the topic of quantum theory here. And firstly, I think that this kind of showcases nicely how faulty epistemology is a real big problem. So namely empiricism in this case, that we can observe and that what we observe is the most important thing, rather than what we observe is just theoretical interpretation our brain is making of whatever is actually out there. And science is about what's actually there, not what we can observe. So that's, uh, that's a good point. And then full disclosure, of the four strands that David talks about in Fabric of Reality, quantum theory is, if I'm not mistaken, he says it's the most important of the four strands. And <laughs> to me, who's, who's not into physics at all in general, I know very little about it. It's the, my least favorite part. And I always kind of try to go into those uh, chapters in David's books. And I feel like I should understand them. But I always end up ah, giving up somewhat. And I've never really grasped the central tenets of quantum theory, I think. So with that in mind, with the fact that I don't have much 
prior knowledge or background knowledge about physics, you've already explained there how we have falsified some of the other theories that are going around there. And you, you've shown what experiments give us corroborating evidence, or some of them, uh, for the multiverse as the best explanation. But if it's possible, I would love if you could outline essentially quantum theories for dummies. How would you explain the theory and what it tells us about the universe without invoking too many technical terms, perhaps, if possible? So this is where um, I, I should, before I, I commence that explanation, apologize to you for taking so long to come onto this wonderful podcast. You've had such high quality, <laughs> high caliber guests. And each time I was too busy to come on, you invite me on, I'd say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll be on. And then, you know, weeks would go by and I'd have to cancel for this or that other reason. You'd then have a wonderful guest on who, when I listened, I would think to myself, wow, that's exactly what I was thinking, only said much more eloquently, much better. And so as I go into this explanation about quantum theory, I get a little self-conscious and I think to myself, well, you've already had guests. Are more qualified than me, more knowledgeable than me about this. So I, I, I get concerned about butchering um, things like quantum theory. And, and, and in fact, I, I could probably say that about just about any topic that we bring up. You will have already had some guest on who can probably do a better job than I can at this. But nevertheless, let, let's try. Let's try and go through. Yeah, let's fuck the humility there for a bit. <laughs> I appreciate you saying all that, but let's go, man. All right. You so, got this. Um, the way in which I like to understand quantum theory is fundamentally about the difference between the discrete and the continuous. However, in saying that, I will say that the most modern understanding of quantum theory is going to bring in the continuous in a way that I'm about to say it doesn't really operate. What I mean by that is we think about any kind of matter. So let's think about gold. Is there a smallest possible particle of gold? Now, if you're an ancient Greek philosopher, you might very well think to yourself, well, you can just keep on dividing up a lump of gold ad infinitum. You can just keep on going forever and there's no smallest possible particle of gold. Unless you're Democritus who thinks the opposite, who thinks, well, there must be a smallest possible particle and he called it the atom, you know, the thing that cannot be divided any further. And so in the modern era, what we understand is, of course, that there is a smallest possible particle for anything that you can think of, whether it's gold, the gold atom, whether it's water, the water molecule, whether it's electricity, the electron, whether it's light, as I explained earlier, the photon. And so this idea of quantum theory is that there is this smallest possible particle, this quanta of whatever it is that you happen to be interested in, including energy, which happens to be the photon. And so, so, so just a follow-up question there, so I understand, because it seems intuitively like whatever, and here's where my complete ignorance comes in, but I, I'm curious. So it seems like any small constituent that you can find, why couldn't you always say, yeah, but we can split that too, and so on ad infinitum? But are you saying that that might be possible, but then it's no longer, yeah, gold, as in your example, then will become something else? Precisely. Take water. I mean, H2O. Yeah, you can divide the H2O molecule in two. Any high school science teacher will be able to do that for you with something called a Hoffman voltameter. And you'll divide it into hydrogen and oxygen. But now you no longer have water. You have the constituents out of which the, the water is made. And so repeat that argument for just about anything that you're interested in. You know, gold, you cut the gold atom in half. You split the gold atom. I think gold's number, whatever it is, 72 on the periodic table. You divide that in half. You've got something that's no longer gold. Now, uh, then it gets into this interesting question, however, about 
when you take something like the electron. Now, the electron, can you divide the electron into half? Well, so far as we know, our best explanation of what electrons are is we say they are fundamental particles. And as a fundamental particle, it is indivisible. Now, this is not to say that sometime in the distant future, whatever replaces quantum theory won't reveal that there is constituents within the electron. But so far, hitherto, we haven't been able to divide the electron into anything more simple. And so this is where the quantum theory comes in, that there is this smallest possible bit of certain things. And so it seems to rule in favour of the discrete over the mm. continuous. And so we have, but just, just as a side, I don't know if any of your previous guests might have talked about this. Quantum theory is, in a sense, deeply at odds with our other great fundamental theory of physics, which is general relativity. And general relativity is the theory of space-time. And in in that conception, the way in which the mathematics is done, you need to do uh, certain kinds of derivatives, integrals, which rely upon continuous variation of things. And long story short, it seems as though there is no smallest possible unit of time or no smallest possible unit of space or space-time. You can just keep on dividing that up. It's continuous. And so on the one hand, we have general relativity saying the fundamental nature of reality, according to it, is that things are continuous. And on the other hand, quantum theory is saying, no, things are discrete. <laughs> and so how do, you, how do you bring these together into a coherent whole about what the fundamental nature of reality is? Well, at the moment, no one knows. And so that's a really interesting area of research. And we need to wait for the smart people at the Sam Kuypers of the world to come up with an answer as to how we actually go forward and figure out what comes next after quantum theory, after general relativity. However, there is this twist in the tail of then trying to understand what continuous things are within quantum theory. You mean seemingly continuous things? or Because if quantum theory is true, then there aren't continuous things, right? Or did I misinterpret that? No, you didn't. But the modern spin I want to put onto this is, as we say, the way of understanding what's going on in the experiments of quantum theory and what's going on with the formalism. When I say formalism, I mean the mathematical equations that are used to describe the evolution of quantum systems over time, one of which is called the Schrodinger wave equation. The Schrodinger wave equation is just this way of showing how all the possibilities that exist come together to affect the possibility that you actually observe. And so on the multiverse account, all these possibilities really do exist. Uh, we just take it seriously. The Schrodinger wave equation says that they're there. Um, the experiments reveal that those possibilities are affecting the possibility that we actually see. So on that basis, um, all the possibilities really exist. Now, the thing is, the Schrodinger wave equation is a continuous distribution of, for example, there are many ways of using the Schrodinger wave equation, but it's a continuous distribution of all the positions, for example, that an electron might have throughout the multiverse. And so an electron in our universe is a discrete single thing in our universe. Or is it? Mm -hmm. Because according to reading the multiverse chapter in the beginning of infinity and reading David's other work on this, we learn that in fact, the electron, as we observe it in the universe, is unavoidably a multiversal object, which means it has fungible instances of itself in any given place at a particular time. Now, what that means is that the electron is not a single electron, but is uncountably infinite instances of itself at a single place 
and time. But more than that, it also occupies all possible places that the laws say that it can occupy throughout the multiverse. And in this sense, it's kind of continuous. So if you had a God's eye view of the multiverse, if you could somehow get outside of the multiverse and look at an electron in all the different universes at the same time, you would see a continuous stream of possibilities as to where that electron is. But in any one universe, it's a single discrete object. This concept of fungibility, this this idea that electrons have counterparts in other universes that are exactly identical to themselves in exactly the same place as themselves, but occupy different universes. This is what is known as diversity within fungibility because those electrons, those uncountably infinite numbers of them, all exactly identical, except that some measure of them, some proportion of them, over time will end up going into different places. And it's this sense in which, although all the electrons are exactly identical at one moment in time, after some amount of time, after some quantum interaction, what will happen is those electrons will split up into a number of different groups, you know, for in the simple case, two different groups of uncountably infinite numbers of electrons, which prior to the splitting, or the different, we shouldn't say splitting, differentiation of these groups of electrons, prior to that, they were completely fungible. And then they go on to be non-fungible, they're differentiated. And this causes a differentiation of the universes. There are some concepts here that I usually get stuck on when I read that chapter. I actually tried to read the whole thing before this interview, and I read most of it. And I I think I understand the basic premise of, yeah, fungibility. I like the example he uses, one of the examples with, uh, yeah, dollars in in a bank account. They're all essentially fungible. They are uh, identical, and there's not like you can coherently say that – the dollar you used to buy something yesterday is the same dollar you put in uh, two days before. I- I'm just curious, though, if we can outline what is the postulate that there is a multiverse? Like, what does that entail for someone who might not have read the book, only heard about the multiverse? What is the actual claim there? And maybe we can invoke some other fun concepts like determinism, entanglement, Perhaps we've already talked about interference and wave-particle duality, but yeah, so so what are we talking about when we we say the multiverse, Brett? Yeah, sure. There's this wonderful series on YouTube by this guy who does a talk cast who did a five-episode breakdown of the uh, <laughs> chapter in the beginning of the film. Yeah, but it's so long for there. someone who just wants, <laughs> so, you um, know, the three-minute yeah. version. <laughs> three, okay. Um, so the multiverse is – now, the, the original way of trying to explain this was to say that the multiverse literally is a series of parallel universes, uh, uncountably infinitely large number of these parallel universes all coexisting obeying the same physical laws, but over time evolving in different ways. Now, um, since that idea was put out there, I think uh, Hugh Everett kind of had that idea, but um, David Deutsch has refined that idea and various other people, um, David Wallace, for example, and others have subtly different ways of explaining what's going on with the multiverse as we understand it, way of explaining what's happening in these quantum theory experiments. It's still the case that there are different universes that really do exist, but they're quasi-parallel. So they do, in fact, interact. Parallel Mm -hmm. would imply that there's no interaction between these universes, but in fact, they they do interact. And more than this, uh, and this gets gets quite complicated, and uh, I'd refer people to the work of David Wallace for this one, which is that 
Unlike with when we think about the universe and the universe stretching from here on Earth to the other side of the galaxy to the other side of the universe, you know, billions upon billions of light years away, that universe, in the general relativity sense, we can imagine just whole universes like that one parked next to another, parked next to another, all just subtly different, that kind of thing. But in fact, in the quantum theory understanding of this, you can have universes that exist in a small region of space within other universes. So the universes don't all necessarily have the same size, nor do they continue to exist for the same amount of time. If we have, one day we do have sort of, we have the nascent beginnings of quantum computation. And in a quantum computer, if a quantum computer is working, what's going on inside that quantum computer literally is a separate universe. It is disconnected from our universe, and it's only later that it becomes a part of our universe. And so these universes can and split apart, differentiate, recombine, come together, interfere again. Uh, and so they, they, they're not necessarily what people might visualise as universes in the classic cosmological sense consisting of all these planets. They are that, but they're, they're also more than that. Now, the really kind of mind-bending part of this for me is that not only do the particles, of course, have counterparts in other universes, so the electrons have other counterparts in different universes, but you, you as a person, have counterparts in the other universe. And, and this is where, for me, in the concept of what a person is, all of the four strands that are in the fabric of reality really do come together. The nexus of these four really is in the nature of personhood. And that's one of the mm. most mind-bending things for me. You know, obviously we have evolved. We're part of natural selection. So natural selection has led, in a sense, uh, to people. But the theory of computation, which is part of this, this worldview as well, well, we, we are computers of a kind running a special software of a kind. And what is that special software? It's a critical kind of software that creates new explanations and so there you've got epistemology and then if we bring in quantum theory what's quantum theory got to do with this well quantum theory for me is the most astonishing part of this story about what we are as people because right now uh, me Brett and you Chris are sitting there on our chairs and we have the experience that we're just this one person in this one universe but in fact we are also uncountably infinitely many fungible instances of ourselves. But we just have this single, coherent, conscious experience. But every single moment that goes by, we too are differentiating into different copies, going off and doing different things. Of course, we're only ever conscious of one particular instance, one particular um, a version of ourselves. But there are other versions. There are versions where I've uh, probably many, many more versions where I've hung up the phone on you right now because I'm just <laughs> talking to you. But there's many others in which you know yeah. I, I, I've gone for a coffee or you know in which. Um, you know, I've continued the conversation, but I've said something slightly different. And so uh, this is the truth. This is really what's going on. And so I, I think there's an important philosophical research project out there for any people who are interested in this is what is the nature of personhood, given what this worldview that we're trying to understand, given uh, what I've just said about the four strands, how do these four strands come together to allow us to have a deeper understanding of what a person is? Uh, I think that could be a really interesting way of, um, uh, of doing some philosophical research on this question. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I have to reinvoke the idea of uh, intellectual vertigo that you talked about before. It's just, um, yeah, mind-baffling to actually try to get your head around the fact that I'm branching into trillion different universes all the time. All right, man. So what you said there is a really nice segue into what I want the overarching theme of this podcast to be about, namely 
a defense of people and the significance of people. So I guess you could say of humanism. And um, yeah, like David has pointed out before, there's somewhat uh, of an intellectual trend right now where people who consider themselves smart or call themselves rationalists of different types seem to yeah, denigrate people in a variety of different areas and ways. And I don't think that's right. I don't think it's morally morally right. And I don't think it's factually correct, the claims they're making. So I want to go into a few different things there. But before we do that, and before actually before we leave the physics part, I just want to ask you a last part about that, which is I don't understand. I know David writes this, but I still don't get what he means. How can a fully deterministic multiverse with fungible instances, how can they possibly become different? What is it that, uh, I don't know if that's possible to explain in just a minute or two, but I still don't understand how fully deterministic universes that are fungible and have the same history all of a sudden can become different. What, what, what determines that? I don't understand that. Okay, so how does a deterministic universe differentiate itself into multiple different instances? Is that, is that the question? Yeah, so it's, what is that just uh, prob- probabilistic? Or, or Because I know it's often said that everything that can happen will happen somewhere in the multiverse. But I don't understand, uh, in David's example, the jolt in the transporter occurs in one universe but not in the other, but they were fungible and they followed the same deterministic laws, I don't get what yes. what determines that. So deterministic doesn't mean that only one thing can possibly happen. Deterministic just means it's going to follow the laws of physics. And the laws of physics in this case allow for multiple possibilities given any particular event. And so when, for example, we talk about firing photons at a double slit, what we're actually doing, let's think about the process by which photons are actually produced in that experiment. Well, usually it's... uh, it could be so. It could be something like a candle. Okay, a candle could be burning, and the photons that are coming out of that candle are going off in all different directions. They're taking all the possible paths that they could take. Now, of course, in the candle situation, you've got many, many photons simultaneously coming out of that candle. So let's alter the experiment a little bit, where we've got a laser, and the process by which lasers produce photons is you know you're exciting this little crystal and uh, because the energy inside the atoms inside the crystal is such that the electrons move up and down in their orbitals and this releases a photon but when the photon comes out it could have gone left or right let's say why could it go left or right because that's what the laws of physics say the laws of physics permit mandate that photons can take multiple different paths. And they do take multiple different paths Mm. in different universes. And that's the sense in which things are determined. And at the same time as them being determined, they're determined to do different things in different universes. So it's this word determined, it has so many philosophical hang-ups in people's minds, I think. It seems to indicate that either there is just an unavoidably single path that things follow, wrong because of quantum theory, or that there's no room for anything emergent and real, wrong because of reasons of emergence, reasons of creativity in particular. So this idea of determined, 
everything has to be determined. Okay, there, there's no getting around that. The only alternative to determinism, uh, as pe- many people have observed, is things are not determined. In which case, everything's random. But we can see just yeah. by looking around, common sense. Uh, not everything is random. Things are proceeding according to some degree of order, uh, some degree of a path that is reasonably predictable, but not entirely predictable. You know, we, when I say reasonably predictable, we know where the moon is going to be tomorrow night, uh, but we don't know what people are going to do next. So there is this kind of middle ground, happily, between things that are predictable and things that are inherently unpredictable. And it's in that interface between those two things that we get creativity and interest. Yeah, no, I love that. That that really clarifies it for me. So you mentioned it has philosophical implications to think of determinism this mistaken way. And I, I want to get into the whole free will uh, reductionist debate later and the arguments uh, for that that we can then go into. But so so would this effectively mean that when someone argues we can't have free will because if we were to rewind the tape, you would always do the same thing in that situation. That wouldn't be true in the sense? Well, that's an interesting question philosophically and physically. Now, what precisely happens if we rewind the tape, so to speak, is that we don't know what the role of consciousness is in this picture of physical reality. So I don't know, if you rewound the tape, what your consciousness would do as a matter of fact. Would it follow the path that you did follow or would it follow the path of these other otherwise fungible instances of yourself and go off and do something else? I don't know. I don't know what your experience would be. I think we need a proper theory of consciousness, a proper theory of consciousness that connects to quantum theory and ultimately to whatever the successor of quantum theory is. Then we will be able to talk about this rewinding of the tape and it just playing out in a fatalistic sense uh, the same way each time. Even though things will be determined, things in general will be determined, and you will be determined to do one thing rather than another, whether or not that means the same thing all the time, every single time, I, I just don't know. I think no one knows at this point. We're ignorant of that fact and we just have to say all we've got are uh, reasonably good explanations of things like human behaviour. And this is where we invoke things like free will, for example. It's that the best we have at the moment because certainly pure determinism is not explaining that the sense in which certain our thinkers on this topic invoke determinism isn't explaining the creativity of human beings that we see in the world. Yeah, okay. So so re- to rephrase what I said there, you can't, with today's knowledge, make that claim as our best explanation of physics and determinism, right? I don't that think so. That if you rewind no, the point, like we, we don't know uh, at this point. Look, if you rewound the tape, the universe would evolve as it evolved. The multiverse would evolve as it evolved. But because we don't have almost a clue as to what this consciousness thing is, what you then become conscious of over time. I don't know if you would be conscious of the same thing over time. I'm not saying that consciousness is therefore outside of the laws of physics. Far from it. I'm saying whatever the laws of physics are that govern consciousness might allow for the possibility that your consciousness follows a different path than what it did before. Now, your physical body, the physical instantiations of your body, of course, are all doing all the possible things they could have done from the moment at which a choice was made or a quantum event happens. <laughs> it's crazy. But, yeah, yeah. So I'm so, shitting myself in some multiverse <laughs> right now. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. great. I mean, in my book, determinism, when people invoke that to explain much of anything when it comes to behavior, to me, it just sounds like 
kind of a tautology, like saying everything that happens, happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, yeah. It's just a necessary truth. It's just to say... Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it, it, yeah. Do, it doesn't. It, it's just a way to describe the limitations of what could happen, but it doesn't give us any explanation of why what happened actually happened. And yes. I think that's the issue. Like, if, if I... The laws of physics don't allow me to just, with the physiology I have now, jump off my balcony and fly away. That's a limitation of the laws of physics, but it doesn't prove in any way that I don't have free will. Like, I, I think it's kind of similar to that. I don't know if that's an unfair analogy, but, but that's how I think about it. Yes. So let's jump to the idea of universality. And I'm talking uh, essentially about computational universality of our brains, and then also the explanatory universality of our minds. And these two are different and separable, but in us, they go together in a way that make people truly powerful and significant. So I thought before we go into all the arguments against people, let's just see why we think that people are so amazing. So uh, yeah, what, what are these types of universality and why can we say that we know this is the case? Okay, so the first kind that you mentioned is this computational universality, and this is one of the more than more than the the books, the beginning of infinity, and the fabric of reality. I think among physicists, uh, one of the the reasons why David Deutsch is well known in the community is because of this. I think the paper was in 1985 where he published yeah. what I would regard as the essentially the foundations of, of quantum computation. Now, there is some debate here, just as there is in classical computation, you know, who ultimately, in some sense, deserves the credit for, for this theory. You know, in, in, in classical computation, we go, oh, is it Alonzo Church? Was it Alan Turing? Most people sort of uh, hedge towards Alan Turing because he had the Turing machine, which is this way in which we can have a programmable machine that can do the work of any other machine or any other computer it can compute what any other computer can compute. And David Deutsch came along, well, he applied the laws of quantum theory to Turing's machine, to the idea of a Turing machine of a classical computer. Now, there is some suggestion that Richard Feynman had, had also written some things that are related to this, but I think most of us sort of think, well, if we're going to draw a, a line towards the person from which the industry of quantum computation sprung out, it really did seem to be that paper. And in that paper, what David is saying is that the laws of physics are themselves computable and anything that is mm. made of physical stuff in our universe, namely everything, obeys these laws of physics which a computer could be programmed to simulate. So it doesn't matter what the system is, it can be simulated by, simulated efficiently by, at least a quantum computer, in some cases a classical computer as well. But the quantum computer allows you to do a whole bunch of things efficiently. Not every single kind of mathematical problem that you can feed into a quantum computer can the quantum computer actually do efficiently. There are things that can outstrip even the powers of a quantum computer. But certainly for the physical stuff within a universe, we can use quantum computers to simulate them. So what does this have to do with people? Well, it says that brains, the brains of people, are just physical systems obeying quantum physical laws. And so in theory, you could do a simulation of a human brain. You don't even need quantum computation for this, by the way. You only need Turing's universal idea of a classical computer. Most of us think that whatever the brain is doing is a form of classical computation. So that's the sense in which 
the universality of computation has some connection to the nature of what it means to be a human being because the human being is a mind running on a brain and the brain is a physical system. Now, the additional step on top of this, because after all, uh, my cat that's wandering around making noise as I'm making this podcast, uh, is also a physical (laughs) system and a classical computer could simulate the mind of that cat. But different to the cat... What a human has on top of its brain is a kind of universal software that the cat does not have. And when we talk about this universal software, so we're not talking about the brain, the hardware anymore. The hardware could be universal in the same way that a classical computer is universal. You don't need much for a universal classical computer. A a, a, a washing machine these days contains a classical computer that is universal that in theory could do the work of any other computer. It would just probably take a lot longer to do the work of another computer. It might need a little bit of additional memory as well to do the work of another computer. But when we talk, that's the hardware stuff, but when we talk about the software that's running on the brain of the cat, well, it can only do cat stuff. The cat isn't able to add numbers together. The cat isn't able to compose a sonnet. The cat isn't able to think of calculus. It's not able to model the rest of physical reality. At best, my cat probably has a physical model in its brain of the house. That's about it. It can find its way around the house. It can find its way to food. But a person, a human being, has this capacity to model, to explain, every other physical system that exists that we know of in physical reality, which is an astonishing fact about human beings. David uses the example of a quasar, an object on the other side of the universe, whose physics is completely unlike the physics of the human brain. And yet, there is something similar between the quasar and the person's brain. Namely, inside the person's brain, inside their mind, is a working model, not just a visual image, but a mathematical model with mathematical relationships between the parts of the explanation of the quasar that is in one-to-one correspondence with what's going on in that quasar billions of light years away, which is just remarkable. And that's a quasar. But Mm. you can apply that to any physical system. And this uh, puts paid to this idea that many people have had over the years, many scientists. uh, Let's let's pick on uh, the great Professor Dawkins, this wonderful Professor Dawkins who has gifted us with such great knowledge about how biology works and the, the selfish gene. And, you know, we cannot detract from what Richard Dawkins has contributed to our body of knowledge. However, Richard Dawkins has expressed ideas that many, many scientists have expressed over the years. And his idea is of middle world. And middle world is that our brains have evolved only to comprehend what's going on in middle world. So we can't possibly understand what's really going on with quantum theory. It's too small. We didn't evolve for that. We can't really understand what's going on with general relativity where things are too big or too fast or too massive and so on. And so our brains are somehow limited in their capacity to understand these things. But that's wrong. That's wrong because of this explanatory universality that people have. We can understand these things because we're able to understand anything that can be understood. Uh, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson was another one who said maybe the ultimate laws of physics are simply too difficult for us to understand. Or maybe if an alien came to us, then they would have the ultimate laws of physics, but they'd be unable to explain it to us because we are just like chimpanzees compared to them. Uh, My own father likes to talk in this way that, you know, maybe we're like cockroaches or chickens compared to the super intelligent aliens that are out there. But I think this simply cannot be the case that for any explanation, all it is, is just a sequence of statements, one logically following from the previous one, coming together to describe 
model explain some physical phenomena and if you don't understand one of those inferences, one of those lines in that explanation, you can ask for an explanation of how you get from that line to the next line. There must always be a way of explaining to someone else how the explanation works. It must be computable for reasons of computational universality. And so therefore, there must be a way in which you can express this in natural language such that a person who is sufficiently interested and is going to pay attention will be able to understand that. And if the superintelligent aliens come along with the successor to the successor to the successor of quantum theory, they'll be able to explain it to us. It might take a while, but we'll be able to get there. We will be able to explain precisely what they can explain because that's the nature of universality. It means that whatever can be understood can be understood by us. I have a few follow-up questions to that. I, I want to uh, allow myself to think out loud on this topic a little bit here. And yeah, please interrupt me if anything I say happened to be false. But this is the way I've come to understand this after what you said there. Computational universality is a proven fact of the laws of physics as we know them today. That's what David did in his paper, which is essentially saying that since the laws of physics themselves are computable, then everything that has to follow those, which is every other physical process, has to be computable as well. This implies directly that our minds, our brains have to be computable and hence they can be simulated by a computer. Am I right so far? Fallibly perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great, yeah, that's, that's a cool phrase. Can we just, I think this, this sort of takes us just a little, uh, sort of a little segue, but I'd, I'd just like to flag this for people. When Chris says a, a proven fact, now what we understand that to mean within this fallibilist worldview is not that it is the once and for all final truth. Proven in David Deutsch's conception, he has this wonderful chapter in The Fabric of Reality and various other places where he talks about what proven actually means. Proven just means also it's a kind of computation and it can contain errors, but proven fact is a, a perfectly reasonable thing to say about everything that Chris said there. Right. No, that, that's important. And yes, it's, it's all provisionally true when we talk about that. But as you have mentioned recently in your podcast, it's just cumbersome to always preface when you say something is true with provisionally true. I mean, that, yeah. that should be implied with the right epistemology. So yeah, that's great. And okay, so, so that, that's one part of it. So if I come in with the objection, oh, but the brain being a computer is just a analogy, why doesn't that hold up? Because as, as you rightly said, it's provably the fact that matter follows the laws of physics. The laws of physics are computable. The brain is made of matter. It is doing computations. That's what it's doing. All you need to do is to add in your mind 22 plus 23. You're doing a computation. There's no way of getting away from this notion of physical processes being computations of a kind and the brain actually doing those computations. Why people want to deny that the brain is a computer, I don't know. They want, I think they want to preserve some sort of supernatural, spiritual idea, magical thinking that if we, if we just regard the brain as a physical object, then therefore we lose something about human nature. But I think we gain a whole lot. We, we still have, we must say, 
there is still a lot of mystery here, but it's an interesting scientific mystery. It is, what is the nature of the software that's running on the brain? We don't have to jump to magical explanations. We can jump to our best scientific explanation, which is... The brain is a computer of some sort. And I know that people, there are various people out there, great thinkers on this, original thinkers on this, who want to go down the road of conceiving of the brain as being some other kind of object that's not a computer. And it being an analogy, after all, all the other analogies failed. That used yeah. to be thought that the brain was some sort of steam engine type thing, and that or like a steam engine type thing. That was just an analogy, and we know that that's wrong now. But although I, you know, I, I completely... Uh, support the idea that people should try out different ideas. Of course, we can't we can't preclude any ideas. Everything should be on the table. But at the same time, we can't ignore what we know. What we know from our best science is physical systems obey physical laws. The brain is a physical system obeying physical laws. And that physical system is completing computations. And I would go further and say it's running certain kind of software. Yeah, and that's going to be my next uh, line of inquiry here. But so, so to uh, stay on that point just a little bit, what is it that makes us say that the the brain is a computer, but a uh, rock, who's also a physical process, is not a computer? Is it that it doesn't perform any computations, but it is a computational process, or w- how do you differentiate? Yeah, precisely. So there's no there's no input output is there for the rock. There, now there is for a for a cat, ah, okay. right? The cat the cat's got input coming into its senses and it's you know, undergoing behaviors. It's got a certain kind of output. So it's a computer. Its brain is a computer as well. But as I say, it's not a it doesn't got this universal capacity to do anything it likes. It can't universally construct anything it likes. But we we are taking input, we are taking, you know, uh, evidence from our senses. And then we're doing stuff. <laughs> We've got an output. So how, how are we getting from input to output? Well, there's got to be a processor. There's some sort of process going on. And another word for that process is a computation. A computer is the thing doing undergoing that process, taking the, right. the interesting software inputs and making certain hardware outputs like walking as we walk along and we build this, this visual model of um, the world around us. So because computation is universal, there can only be one type of information processing in this universe, which means that any system that is effectively taking an output and providing an output, did I say that right? Taking in an, Taking input an input and providing yeah. an output is effectively a, a sort of computer in this fundamental sense. Not in the laptop sense, if you look at the higher emergent level, but basically anything that processes inf- information that way is, is a sort of computer. Not universal, but does that make sense? Yes, you, you, there has to be a computation going on behind the scenes somewhere. You know, you look at traffic lights changing from red to green or whatever. The fact that they're changing over time in, in response usually to whether the pres- there's a car there or not a car there, you know, these ones that are actually able to detect things, there must be mm-hmm. a computer behind that. Now, there are certain regularities that happen in nature where you wouldn't say, well, that's a computer. You know, as planets orbit the sun, I wouldn't describe that system of the planets going around the sun, even though there's motion. I wouldn't say that that's a computation as such. They're obeying physical laws and those physical laws are computable and what you could simulate that inside of a computer but that thing that system itself is not a computer however how about a plant well no i think a plant is going to be something like 
that planetary system, I would say. It's not a computer because although you have a, a, a kind of energy coming down, so in a sense that's kind of um, an input, the sunlight's coming down and the rain is coming down, yeah, the exactly. water's being absorbed, and you're kind of outputting, you know, this, is, this is when it becomes an analogy, you're outputting growth of the plant. I wouldn't say that that is a computation as such because – other than uh, the, at the cellular level, there's no nervous system, there's no brain there, there's nothing there that is actually forming a model of the rest of reality in any kind of sense. In the case of the traffic lights, it's forming a very, very low-resolution, simple model of reality because it can detect presence of cars or not presence of cars, let's say. So there must be some kind of computer there that is uh, yeah, doing something at least. Mm. So could you invoke self-similarity here? I'm not... Absolutely sure that I – well, we can never be. I got myself there. But uh, I'm not sure I understand self-similarity perfectly. To me, it just means that there are parts of the universe that can be represented by other parts, such as our brains, for instance. Would you say that's correct to begin with? I guess so, yes. So, yeah, in the case of that, as, as we say, the, you know, the, the case of the brain, it's forming these models of the, the rest of um, physical reality as much as it knows of that physical reality. I, I, yeah, I personally don't understand uh, self-similarity. Does it include, for example, um, a painting that someone does of, of, of a landscape? You know, the, the painting has similarity of the rest of the landscape, but uh, I guess that self-similarity is inside the brain of the artist. Self-similarity is just that the reality is representable by a universal computer, right? Uh -huh. That's how I think about it. And then a computer then, from what you've said here, could be something that can instantiate abstractions and their properties even in a, in a minor way. And I, I guess the plant wouldn't do that, but the traffic light would. Would that be fair? Yeah, correct. Yes, yes, yes. So in principle, the computer can contain within it some model of the rest of reality. Or at least a, a part of reality. As I keep going back to the cat, you know, it can it can have a model of part of reality, and the traffic lights are part of reality, presence or absence of of traffic on the road. Now that's very useful for me in my own thinking here, selfishly. But okay, so if I come in with the other objection, then yeah, I will grant you, Brett, that after all you said there, it follows that the brain must be a computer. Sure, but how do I know that the computer is Turing complete? That is, that it can effectively compute everything that is computable. We, how do I know that? So for Turing completeness, all we need for a universal Turing computer, the theory of the Turing computer, is an ability to write a symbol, delete a symbol, move the read head hither or thither um, in order to continue the computation. It's, it's not much to ask. And so in the case of almost any computer that exists, it's going to be Turing complete. Now, there are certain ways in which you can artificially restrict the ability of computers to do certain tasks. And there might be good reasons why a programmer would want to do that, in which case you make the programming language such that the computer is not Turing complete. But in the case of our brains, there is no such limitation that's been imposed by some sort of programmer. And, and hitherto, by the way, you know, even if someone thinks that this is the case, that, oh, the, the brain isn't Turing complete, they have some ad hoc reason why, you know, the, the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson argument that the ultimate laws of physics might be such that our brains simply can't understand them. 
I suppose that's an argument for. Just maybe our, our brains aren't Turing complete. Well, we can just take the optimistic view that hitherto our explanation for why it is we've been able to come up with these grand explanations of reality is because we have a Turing complete full ability to understand anything that is comprehensible. We can compute anything that is computable. Uh, why we think that should fail in the future, I don't know. Their explanation of why it's worked so far is the brain is Turing complete. We are universal explainers. I don't think that computational universality, even if you grant that the human brain is computationally universal, Turing complete, that doesn't say anything about whether we does in fact have the explanatory universality. Those two doesn't imply each other uh, logically, right? So universal, um, explanatory universality, it could be the case that Although computationally universal, there are still limits to what we can explain because of our software. That wouldn't be universal. But I think that the arguments, as far as I understand them, and I, I kind of uh, wrote a thesis against superintelligence for my cognitive science bachelors, and we argued that, well, first of all, we can explain some parts of reality coherently. It would be very strange to say that yeah, some parts of reality we can explain, some parts we can't explain. What, wh why would that be the case? We don't have an explanation for that. Also, we have a very, very fine understanding of the laws of physics that seem to be computable, as you said. And so if we can understand those, we should be able to understand everything else that follows those laws, right? That makes sense to me. And then thirdly, it's just kind of aching to supernatural explanations to say that some things can affect us, but there's no way to explain how that's going on. So uh, would you agree with those three? And is there anything you would add to that? No, absolutely. And I think that um, David Deutsch himself on your very podcast made, made those points that there are these, these two kinds of universality, the first of which being this hardware universality kind, whether things are able to compute anything that can be computed. And then the explanatory universality on top of that, which is the software kind that we're running, the one doesn't necessarily follow from the other. Um, and I think that this desire from some intellectuals to deny the capacity of the human, the capacity of the person to comprehend reality, it's just all part of that same misconception that people are either impotent or evil kind of thing, you know, that either we're, we're just not able to do much at all to affect physical reality and to affect our condition. And insofar as we can, we're just evil anyway. So I just think it's part of that, that view, that terrible ideology that, that can colour the way in which people think about all this stuff. And so in, in that worldview, it, it's good to say on that worldview that, hey, people just can't understand everything anyway. And maybe everything that, that we think is just completely and utterly flawed. Now, of course, we as fallibilists, we will say, yeah, well, we agree that uh, there can be errors in any part of our knowledge and we expect there to be errors in every, any part of our knowledge. But we also expect there to be truth. We expect there to be solutions to the problems that we have, real solutions to the problems that we have. And we see no reason why and no reason to argue for the impotence of people or the um, the lack of capacity of people, the imprincipal ability of people to continue to make progress, to continue to understand the deepest, most fundamental physical laws. We fully expect that to happen. And, and if people want to argue 
that people uh, of the future will just cease to make progress, will we'll stop understanding things, or there will be things that are too hard to understand. That's fine. Let them argue. So long as they're not getting in the way of the people doing the work of actually trying to understand stuff, I'm happy for them to go off and have a little club over there, you know, the the, the pessimists of the world, and they can all sit there and they can they can pray for the end times because they think the end times are coming and that, um, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Let them have their little religion over there. We'll, we'll continue to make scientific and philosophical and, and moral progress. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I mean, to play devil's advocate a bit, I guess you could say that, well, we want to keep our humility in the sense that we've seen historically how segregating different people have, have become a real moral issue and uh, led to horrendous things like the Holocaust and things like that. And uh, I guess it's, it might be a good intention behind that, not wanting to create something like that again. I don't think that's an argument for uh, denying computational universality, but I think you, we can take with us the idea that we, we should be humble, but we shouldn't be timid little pussies. <laughs> right? Do you, you know what I mean? That, so, so that makes sense, but it's not they're mistaken on the fact that therefore we should denigrate ourselves, which would be, as I also said to David in our podcast, that I can't think of anything more racist than actually saying the entire humanity is worthless or uh, a virus or like that's even more racist than just singling out one one uh yeah precisely uh, i don't want yeah. to um socially control anyone or, or mentally control anyone so there, there will be people who argue for not wanting to make progress or because they think that humans are a danger or whatever i'm happy for them to not make progress they don't have to make progress they can have stasis in a little community that is static uh, so long as they're not trying to control the rest of us who want to make progress now i don't think there needs to be uh, one person needs to compel the other now of course they might very well say and some of them of course do argue i was I was laughing about this myself recently about, well, let, let's just name uh, Nick Bostrom, who argues about all the ways in which uh, the world might end or the existential threats that are out there. And, you know, he will talk about, of course, the asteroid might come and destroy the Earth. Uh, uh, the, the, AG, the, the, the super intelligent AI might take over the Earth as well. In, in, when you read his serious philosophical papers on this, often his prescriptions for the way in which we can avoid these catastrophes is to have, you know, global government that is going to just control everyone and tax everyone and ensure we have sufficient resources uh, and sufficient control over everyone so that these terrible things don't happen. But in his list of things that that might destroy the world, one of them is a totalitarian regime. So he's got, there's this weird <laughs> irony at the centre of his entire philosophy and the centre of the, the pessimistic philosophy that the very thing that might kill us can only be solved by another thing that might kill us. And so, uh, yeah, we, we need to be able to identify flaws in reasoning like that and uh, identify different avenues for progress, namely that, of course, we're always going to have these problems. But we are the solution to these problems. There is no alternative. There's no alternative other than continually making progress and ever faster progress, not only for the problems we do know about, but as David is very animated in trying to remind us, the problems that we don't yet know about, the problems that are unforeseen. And the only solution to being able to solve problems not yet foreseen is to make progress as rapidly as possible, to create more and more fundamental knowledge, because the deeper and more fundamental your knowledge, then the broader the uh, sort of spectrum of problems that you'll be able to solve into the infinite future. Yeah, and I guess that might be the second misconception underlying the idea that 
underlying the fact that people seem to want us not to be able to explain everything. There's some romanticism there almost with what we said, uh, yeah, invoking some, it, it, there's something nice about having a, well, supposedly nice about having something out of our reach, something that is untouchable, unexplainable. And I, I just think you can believe we can explain anything. And in that sense, we are gods to some degree, to some degree, and still have that humility and excitement about the fact that we know epistemologically that we will never reach the end anyway. There will always be problems, but the problems can become more and more interesting ad infinitum. And yeah. to me, it's just, yeah, it's such a mind-expanding thing to realize that, yeah, we can explain whatever we want to explain, and that's amazing, but we're never going to run out of interesting things to explain. So, I mean, I don't see, yeah, I just think it's a mistake to hold on to that view. Yeah, I think that, like, as you as you say, like, um, it's it's sort of a, a humbling thing, and we can be modest in the face of the fact that we will never explain everything. But I don't know if necessarily modesty is the, the right term to label this. It's simply a fact of reality that we can't possibly explain everything into the future because of the other fact, problems are inevitable. So that we're always going to end up with being encounter, encountering something for which hitherto we don't have an explanation. And isn't that fun? Isn't that like the best thing about our circumstances <laughs> that we're not going to get to the final answer? People who talk about the end of science, who talk about a completed science, a completed science of the mind, a completed physics, a completed this or that, what they're talking about is a point at which human civilization has the final answer. And if you have the final answer, well, that, that evokes all sorts of nasty ideas, doesn't it? Um, th this idea that beyond which we can do no more, beyond which we can solve, solve no more problems, and beyond which we cannot improve our lot. We get to a point where it is kind of a utopia. And utopia in the bad sense, you know, because utopia was supposed to be a bad idea. You know, the, the, the original thinkers on this, you know, had, had the idea that utopia isn't something you want to strive for. It's something you want to avoid. And so if you have this idea of completed and science. And it's a dystopia though, right? It's a dystopia, yeah, yeah. And so you get to this point where whatever the situation is at that time, there's no way of improving things. And so therefore, any problem that you encounter is not possibly going to be solved. But we know problems are soluble. They're inevitable, but they're soluble. Hell yeah, man. That's great. Uh, okay, so and, and uh, to tie the knot on the whole computational universality of people, we don't have an alternative explanation, good explanation to Turing's computational theory. A person can come in and say, yeah, well, that's a theory, but it might not be true because that that is effectively the only good explanation we have as of now, right? As far as I know, I mean, I've heard the only other uh, thinker I've heard on this that has given me some degree of pause was Donald Hoffman on uh, Sam Harris's podcast. But his, mm. so far as I can tell, his his thesis, his metaphysical thesis, I would call it, doesn't make any testable predictions. But what he says is that the most fundamental thing in the universe is consciousness. And that it's kind of like this operating system that exists somewhere. It's not necessarily running on the brain. Perhaps it is. I'm not sure I fully understood the idea. But he just went the full hog, so to speak, and just denied computational universality. He didn't really address it, but he was just willing to say, well, there's something deeper than the laws of physics. That something deeper is consciousness. And out of this consciousness, out of this so-called theory of consciousness that he has, arises fundamental 
physics. Now, it gave me pause, but not for long. I, I kind of had a, a, a bunch, I wrote a blog, couple of blog posts on this, and I have a bunch of criticisms about that, that whole way of conceiving of reality. And I don't think, ultimately, it doesn't seem to make any testable predictions, which is what we want from a scientific theory. We want a way of distinguishing that theory from other theories. Yeah, because I, I remember listening to the uh, first episode on the then Waking Up podcast with Sam Harris between David and Sam. And I know that they were talking about functionalism, information processing, the idea of a, why we're smarter than a chicken, why it doesn't make sense to say that other aliens would stand in the same relation to us. And uh, I know that Sam kind of conceded the point in the end, but he said with some proviso like, I, I don't remember verbatim, but he said something like, this assumes that computational universality is true, like that that theory is true. And he seemed to put it on the shelf as a, not as a proven fact of the best laws of physics, as far as we know them today, but rather as a, oh, it's an option, but there are other options that are equally viable. It is a law of physics. It is a law of physics in as good standing as anything in general relativity. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental scientific principle in as good standing as something like evolution by natural selection or neo-Darwinism. Um, of course, it, assuming that's true, yes, yes, Sam or anyone else who is, is thinking along, uh, you know, we, we say black holes exist. Assuming that general relativity is correct, you know, um, um, stars exist. Assuming that our theories of astrophysics are correct and, in fact, you know, we're not bounded by a celestial sphere at some point always our our knowledge is assuming that the best that we know at the moment is in fact the best that we know at the moment um it's not to say that it's finally true or that it can't possibly be tweaked or turned over uh, at some point but what else can we say what what other than uh, just doing this metaphysical kind of artistry you know where we're just talking about harry potter type universes although that's a technical term we shouldn't Mention that we're talking about fantasy universes uh, where the laws of physics are different, which is always fun to have after you've had a couple of beers. But if we want to talk about <laughs> a, a serious conception of the best that we know about physical reality here now, um, according to our best scientific and philosophical understandings, then we have to take we have to assume that these things are true. Uh, if we want to play the game of what alternative laws of physics might lead to, what alternative laws of physics might cause uh, the nature of humans to be or the, the or the nature of the universe to be then we could play that game but you, we're no longer doing science yeah no and that's i guess what my point was supposed to be that i i don't think i think it's a misconception there that it's more humble in a good way to not take our best explanations very seriously i don't think we're, we're doing anyone a service by saying then that well uh, universality of computation uh, might be true but let's not get too hasty on accepting it like no no no, we need to accept it now because we don't have a better theory that solves all those problems that it solves and so let's not stick around argue that point let's let's keep moving forward until we get problems with that theory and then try to solve them but i think that's a mistake that many intellectuals make about being overly humble there or thinking that that type of skepticism is actually a good thing i also want to tie that back to something we said in the beginning when we were kind of defending a uh, ferocious interest in the worldview that david deutsch has laid out for us in his books his theory of everything, if I may call it that, is not the answer 
to any of our future problems. And it doesn't solve uh, any future mysteries that we want to solve. It's, it's essentially critical. It imposes restraints on what future good theories can and can't be. And that's the main role of that whole framework. And so, I mean, it's, it's not that... Yeah, we're, we're, I, I think that's often a misconception, though. Yeah, we have the, the final answer here. No, 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 this is just a restraint on future theories, and now we got to get working on those future theories. But let's not waste more time comparing creationism to evo- evolution by natural selection and saying, oh, which one is true? And it's the same, one, same thing here with computational universality. Let's just bring that with us, just as we do with quantum theory and and uh, keep solving problems, keep being critical, keep criticizing all of these, but also really taking the best explanations we have seriously without unnecessary uh, humility that is, is, and skepticism that is just misplaced. Yeah, that's one of the, I think, most subtle, difficult changes in perspective if you come to this Popperian way of understanding knowledge. And David has emphasized this in certain places. And it is kind of shocking when you accept it. And what I'm talking about here is that all the theories are critical in the sense that they are criticisms of every other competitor to them. And sometimes there is no other competitor, but they should be seen as criticism. So something like quantum theory, the scientific theory of quantum theory, is a criticism of every other competing claim. So I'm trying to 